This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Do you want to know how to achieve a free society? Then read my second book, Toward a Free Society, a short guide on building a culture of liberty. You may download the book for free at everythingvoluntary.com or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. If you're new here, let me tell you what this podcast is all about. It's about voluntarism, free markets, peaceful parenting, radical unschooling, and much more. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy. Hello, welcome to the podcast. It's July 9th, 2020. It's the uh, birthday of my youngest sibling, Sheldon, who, give a shout out to him, he, uh, of all my siblings, he shares most of my political leanings, I'd say. We're quite the sordid bunch, I suppose, but he and I are pretty close on that. I think that makes him 32 today. Wow. So funny when you look at your siblings, particularly your younger siblings, it's hard to see them as older. You know, you still see them as the little kids they once were. I still see him as a, as a 10 year old, I guess. (laughs) He still looks like a 10 year old. He has trouble with the facial hair. Okay. Anyway. Um, all right. So for this episode, we're going to, we're going to continue the, uh, citizen, uh, economics 101 mini series, as well as the wizard's rules. And for economics 101, we're going to look at price controls, I believe. So here's a bit, we're going to go back to our trusty economics for the citizen by Walter Williams. Uh, here we go. We're all grossly ignorant about most things that we use and encounter in our daily lives, but each of us is knowledgeable about tiny, relatively inconsequential things. Wow, what a way to start this. For example, a baker might be the best baker in town, but he's grossly ignorant about virtually all the inputs that allow him to be the best baker. What is he likely to know about what goes into the processing of the natural gas that fuels his oven? For that matter, what does he know about oven manufacture? Then there are all the ingredients he uses, flour, sugar, yeast, vanilla, and milk. Is he likely to know how to grow wheat and sugar and how to protect the crop from diseases and pests? What is he likely to know about vanilla extraction and yeast production? Just as important is the question of how all the people who produce and deliver all these items know what he needs and when he needs them. There are literally millions of people cooperating with one another to ensure that the baker has all the necessary inputs. It's the miracle of the market and prices that gets the job done so efficiently. What's called the market is simply a collection of millions upon millions of independent decision makers, not only in America, but around the world. Who or what coordinates the activities of all of, of, all of these people? Rest assuredly, it's not a bakery czar. There are a number of ways to allocate goods and services. They include first come, first served, gifts, violence, dictatorship, or lotteries. When the price mechanism performs the allocation function, we realize efficiency gains absent. We realize efficiency gains absent in other methods. The price mechanism serves as a signaling function. Prices rise and fall reflecting scarcities and surpluses. When prices rise as a result of higher demand, this acts as a signal to suppliers to expand output. They do so because whenever the price exceeds the cost of production, they stand to gain. They ship the goods to those with the highest willingness to pay. 
Let me also add, I thought he would say it, but he didn't, that when prices rise as a result of higher demand, this incentivizes other uh, entrepreneurs to either start new production, which I was going to say uh, shift production. And in a sense, if the entrepreneur is not already doing it, he's doing something else. He may not even be an entrepreneur. He may just be a worker, but he's going to shift his focus over to production because of the, the promise of uh, potential profits. You see this. You see this all the time. Okay, let's let's look at just one of the baker's needs, flour. How does the wheat farmer know whether there's a surge in demand for bakery products? The short answer is that he doesn't. All he knows is that millers are willing to pay higher wheat prices, so he's willing to put more land under cultivation or reduce his wheat inventory. In other words, prices serve the crucial role of conveying information. Moreover, prices minimize the amount of information that any particular player involved in the process of getting flour to the baker needs in order to cooperate. So again, it might... It does incentivize, uh, incentivize current producers to expand their production, but it also incentivizes uh, new producers to enter uh, the market uh, in, in, in the hope of realizing those profits. If the signals are wrong, if the signal is artificial, then this could be a very bad business move. Okay, he goes on. What if politicians thought that flour prices were too high and enacted flour price controls in the wake of a surge in demand for bakery products? Would wheat farmers put more land under cultivation? Would millers work overtime to produce more flour? The answer is a big fat no, because what would be in it for them? The result would be flour shortages, but the story doesn't stop there because mankind is ingenious about getting around government interference. If there were flour price controls, we'd see black markets emerging people buying and selling flour at illegal prices. That's always one effect of price controls. Another would be the corruption of public officials who know about the illegal activity, but for a price, look the other way. In 302, the Roman emperor Diocletian commanded, there should be cheapness, declaring, unprincipled greed appears wherever our armies march. Our law shall fix a measure and a limit to this greed. The predictable result of Diocletian's food price controls were black markets hunger, and food confiscation by his soldiers. Despite the disastrous history of price controls, politicians never managed to resist tampering with prices. That's not a flattering observation of their learning abilities. All right, that's the end of the article. And it's very good. Um, there are different types of price controls. He talked about a price ceiling. There are also price floors. When the government says you're not allowed to charge less than a certain price for your good or service, and it should be known that a minimum wage is a price floor. It's a type of price control. It basically says it's illegal for you as a laborer to sell your labor for uh, lower than the minimum amount that's set. Now, the origins of the minimum wage should be known, especially especially in this time of uh, wokeness. Minimum wages were put in place, were, were agitated for and put in place by white workers who did not want to compete against cheaper black, brown, and Asian uh, labor. So it was a racist, protectionist policy from the very get-go. And today, you see who has who has the highest, which group of people have the highest unemployment rate? Black teenagers. Okay? The minimum wage contributes to that. I mean, there are other contributing factors to minimum wage. If you get rid of the minimum wage, 
I guarantee you there would be all sorts of jobs that would open up for that are right now not worth it to the employer, the entrepreneur to offer because they're just not worth seven, seven dollars. I mean, you see now these, these places like Seattle or uh, I think New York, a lot of these big metro places are going through this where they're raising the minimum wage to $15. Okay. And then you read these stories by business owners, particularly restaurants or whatnot, where they're not able to hire people. Once they lose people, they're not able to fill those positions. It's just too much. And they're losing people and they're going out of business. Now, obviously the, this was, this is, I'm talking about before the coronavirus stuff, the lockdown, that's just exacerbated the problem, of course, but you can't decree by fiat where a price should be. You must let market forces supply and demand determine. Now for a relatively simple job that anybody can do that, everybody in the world is a potential worker for that wage should be pretty low, right? When you force that wage up, you introduce uh, discrimination, okay? You're able to discriminate on other factors easier when you're not discriminating on, on how much the person is willing to accept, okay? And the people that are left out in the cold are those with the fewer skills, and the you know the the greater minorities, I guess we could say the fewer um, other preferred attributes. Okay, the most marginal, I guess we could say, of people are those that are left out in the cold because it's illegal to it's basically illegal to employ them. I talked about the minimum wage a lot a few episodes ago, but when the minimum wage goes up, it does not push everybody else's wage up. Okay, so you have to ask yourself, where do those wages come from? Where does when I, right now I'm an independent contractor, I'm doing gig work. And in, in a, in a large sense, I set my own wage by which, uh, which offers I'm willing to accept and which I'm not. And I'm hovering around $32, $33 an hour on gross. Of course, all my costs are my own, the fuel, the maintenance, my vehicle, um, and so forth. But I've, I've probably maxed out the amount of money one can make doing uh, food delivery, at least in this, at least in this market, this small metro market of Salt Lake City. If I did not have my standards the way they are, I would be earning less. So there's a lot, of, a lot of that's in my control. Of course, there's sort of a, you know, you could work for a minimum, which would be probably six dollars an hour if you did. There are three dollar offers, and you went really far distances, and it took you thirty minutes on each offer. You know, that's what you're looking at, and that and that would be horrible. Anyway. Um, I was going somewhere with that. Oh, when I worked, um, in an office, okay, I had a salary. I don't remember what it was. It was 65, 70,000 a year, something like that. Ask yourself that that's not anywhere near minimum wage. If Salt Lake City or if the country doubled minimum wage, my salary wouldn't have changed at all. It wouldn't have been doubled. It wouldn't have been forced up by the commensurate amount. Uh, if you went from seven to 15, it wouldn't have been pushed up eight bucks an hour. How was my salary set? Well, it was set competitively as a result of supply and demand. Okay. They, you know, the job I was working was a software tester. So look at software testing as its own industry. You've got all these employers looking for, um, certain qualifications, uh, for an employee and the way they're able to attract that sort of talent is by offering a certain salary or a certain wage. 
and people apply. And now, depending on how many people they have apply for it, they're able to really discriminate against those people and the, the qualities that they present themselves as having. Um, I mean, there's a lot of discrimination, racial, sexual, that's quote unquote illegal, but discrimination still happens. Uh, if you remember, no, I thought, I thought the one essay was about discrimination, but I don't think it was. Anyway, he, he talks about discrimination all the time in his columns. Uh, Walter Williams does. Um, he always makes fantastic points about it. Anyway, um, but that's, that's just how wages, uh, or salaries are set. They're supply, they're set through supply and demand. Okay. Where do we need to set this wage so that we can attract not only a lot of potential employees, but quality employees. Okay. If we set it too low, we're going to get double or triple the amount of applicants. It's going to, it's going to take a lot more work from us to go through them. If we set it a bit higher, change the qualifications a little bit, we're going to shrink that labor pool a bit. It's going to be easier to find somebody that meets our needs. So these, these, you know, there's a lot of different forces that go into setting this stuff. You don't need a minimum. And on the flip side, when you have uh, price ceilings, you're, you don't allow people. Uh, you see this sort of thing during um, natural disasters. Okay, if if businesses and current owners of the goods and services that whose demand is skyrocketing are allowed to set their price, uh, raise their prices up in order to better allocate what are becoming more and more scarce resources, then you ensure two things. You ensure that those prices will incentivize new entrepreneurs to bring goods and, and services from outside of the affected area into the area because they know they're going to make a buck. And the second thing that you ensure is that if somebody really, really needs something, that that thing will probably will, will more likely than not be available for them. It'll be available for a higher price, but it'll be available. All right. So now people aren't hoarding and buying things they don't really need because they're scared because they fear for the future. They're not going to the store and they're buying they're buying out all the toilet paper. Okay. Now there's um, eventually I saw businesses who were limiting the amount of toilet paper that somebody could buy and. The reason they were doing that was because they couldn't change the price. You change the price, you get the hue and the cry, and then you get the you know then you get the legal trouble and the political trouble, not to mention the the bad publicity, right? So these these this I believe the reason for the bad publicity is because this idea has gone on long enough that raising prices during a disaster is somehow wrong. It's uh, quote unquote price gouging. And, you know, use this sort of villainous emotional language and you're able to villainize companies that do this when they're really just responding to, again, supply and demand. Let market set prices. These prices serve as signals. And if you don't allow those signals to happen, if you if you mute those signals, then then you don't get more product into your area from outside of the affected area. This this is especially important. Uh, after a natural disaster, you need this stuff brought in. And the quickest and the cheapest and the most efficient way to do that is to allow prices to go up, to send out that signal, that incentive signal to other entrepreneurs and people who will then go to their stores, buy what they can and bring it in. It's just, it's just foolish. Price floors and price ceilings are, are absolutely foolish. 
and they always have the effect of serving one group at the expense of all other groups. And this is the short-sightedness that you find over and over again in government, right? It's, it's, uh, it's how you know they haven't read Hazlitt's economic, uh, economics in one lesson, where that's, that's the central theme is good economists not only consider the effects of a given policy on one group at one time, but the good economist considers the effects on all groups at all times of a given policy. Walter Williams is a good economist. Henry Hazlitt was a good economist. There are many good economists, and there are much, much more uh, bad economists, unfortunately, which is why we have all the troubles we do. All right, let's uh, let's go to the second uh, segment, I guess. This is uh, Wizard's Ninth Rule. This is from the book Chain Fire. It's been a long time since I read this, but if I remember, this was a book where the main protagonists... Um, I guess, partner, girlfriend, wife, who was sort of a secondary protagonist, was um, kidnapped. And there was a magic spell that was put over everybody but the main protagonist that she never really existed. And they were trying to convince him that she's not real, that she's she, she obviously must be just a figment of his imagination. And he was kind of going crazy. So here, so with that in mind, here's here's the rule. A contradiction cannot exist in reality, not in part, nor in whole. All right, so let me read the little summary here by the person who put this together. To believe in a contradiction is to abdicate your belief in the existence of the world around you and the nature of things in it. To instead embrace any random impulse that strikes your fancy. To imagine something is real simply because you wish it were. A thing is what it is. It is itself. There can be no contradictions. Now, it goes on um, to talk about faith, and I disagree with what I'm about to read. I agree with it in part, and I disagree in part, so I'm going to read it, and then I'll explain what I mean. They go on, Faith is a device of self-delusion, a slate of hand done with words and emotions founded on any irrational notion that can be dreamed up. Faith is the attempt to coerce truth to surrender to whim. In simple terms, it is... It is trying to breathe life into a lie by trying to outshine reality with the beauty of wishes. In simple terms, it is uh, it is trying to breathe life into a lie by trying to outshine reality with the beauty of wishes. Faith is the refuge of fools, the ignorant and the deluded, not of thinking rational men. Let me let me just finish and then I'll go back. In reality, contradictions cannot exist. To believe in them, you must abandon the most important thing you possess: your rational mind. The wager for such a bargain is your life. In such an exchange, you always lose what you have at stake. Okay, there's a bit to unpack there. Let me go back to faith. I get what is being said here, and and I agree to it as a matter of a type of religious faith or political faith, where you want somebody to believe something and you're not able to uh, show them any evidence for it, and then you 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 you're basically saying, well, you just need to have faith. That is um, not only a refuge of fools, but a tool of the unscrupulous people who just uh, figured out a way to get you to do what they want you to do by, in essence, lying to you. And, and maybe they believe the lie themselves, but that doesn't make it any less of a lie. And a, and, a, and, a, and to connect this to the contradiction part, when you're when you're saying that there's a there's a person who exists who can has all of these powers and can do these things, but you've you've never seen anything like that in reality. And understanding 
you know, having the understanding you have about how reality works. And of course, this is always, this is always, uh, in a state of flux. This is always changing. We're always, we're always disproving previous, uh, quote unquote, scientific truths and declaring new ones. But when you put together what, what you can know to be true currently, and then you're told, you know, there's a being that has these powers, you just need to have faith that he exists. Then doing that, you're in a very real sense attempting to delude yourself and you're, you're attempting to believe in a contradiction. You know, based on what you know now, you know that such a being couldn't possibly exist. Okay. There's no evidence that this person exists and whether it's a God or somebody else, you know, a man behind the curtain, right? A, a wizard, a wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, then it, it's probably not a good idea to, to put stock in that and to believe that as true. It's a good idea to be skeptical. Okay. And maybe even cynical, depending on the claims that are being made. Okay. So that's, that's the faith that, that, that this person's talking about. That was, uh, I think a part of the story in this particular book. Now there's another type of faith that I would say is axiomatic to action. And that's the belief that, that comes before your will to action. Okay. Before you're going to act, you've got to believe that what you're going to do is going to have the desired effect. Okay. That's a type of faith. That's a faith that I think undergirds every action, you, every purposeful action. Okay. In the praxeological sense, every purposeful action that you perform, you must first believe it's the right action in order. Uh, it's the right action to perform in order to achieve the goal you're intending on achieving. Okay. That requires an act of faith that motivates the action. Okay. This isn't, and, and maybe, maybe we can say this is a different, and it is because in one sense, the reason you have the faith is because of previous experience, right? It's not faith that somebody who seems impossible to exist actually exists and somebody's trying to get you to believe this because I don't know, they want your money or they want, you know, they want certain behaviors out of you, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it is the faith that animates pretty much everything. So, you know, I don't, I don't, when I think of faith, that's what I think about. I, I mean, and this, this other thing is sort of a perversion of that. I guess we could say it's sort of a twisting of that to somebody's ends, somebody unscrupulous, probably. All right, I think that's going to do it for this episode. We talked about uh, the importance of prices and the disastrous effects of price controls in interfering with prices as, a, as an important signal in a market economy. And we talked about how contradictions can't exist in reality, and when we're asked to have faith in them, that is a device of self-delusion. All right, thanks so much for listening, and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.